0: Good morning, my good shepherd friends. Whether you are live, that's at our campus in Charlotte, North Carolina, or live streaming. I'm Talbot Davis. I'm always glad to be able to see you on this or any Sunday morning. And this is, as, as you've already heard, this is the final fourth and final Sunday of the series that's been called Some People Get All the Breaks. And it's been a series in which we've looked at, at all the breaks that uh, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, a man named Solomon, got. He got so many breaks that he got broken by them. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've talked about broken faith and broken hearts and broken spirits. And then today, the final message in the series is called Unbroken. And it comes from the closing section of the book. So if you have uh, your Bible with you, maybe you have a Bible that looks like this, or maybe it's loaded onto your phone. Go ahead and locate Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 8 through 14, and if you don't have either of those, that's okay, because the words are going going to be up on the screen, as they always are whenever we gather together. And and, uh, we just want you all to know at Good Shepherd, whether you've been here for years or whether this is your very first time being here, that at this church, we do not worship the Bible, but we love it. And we love the scriptures, Good Shepherd, because we believe that when you love the scriptures and when you plumb their depths, they help you adore the Savior. And, and we've realized that's really the purpose of life is that we might grow to adore the Savior even more. So when you, if you ever wonder, well, why is that church so big on the Bible? And why do they, well, why, why do they seem to love the Bible? Well, now you know why. Because we know love in the Bible helps us adore the Bible's Savior, who is Jesus. And out of that conviction that we have. You may not share that conviction yet, and that's okay. But out of that conviction, we do something when we're together and talking about the Bible, and it's this, we lift it up. And and if you've not been here with us, you've not tuned in before, and you see there's phones in the air, and Bibles in the air, and you're like, that is just one strange moment in that church. You know what we say? We admit it. We don't try to pretend it's not. This is odd. But what we've discovered, when we don't shy away from our own strangeness, we've discovered that this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. That we know that we're not in charge of our own lives, but we know who is. Amen? And before I say anything else, let's pray. So God, thank you for the Holy Spirit who breathed life and breathed truth into the book of Ecclesiastes and, and breathe the ability to dig through it into us. And Lord, I pray now that you, from the bottom of my feet to the very top of my head, that you would give me a fresh pouring out of everything that's good and everything that's right and everything that's true about God the Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. So I have, uh, over the last several weeks during this series of some people get all the breaks, I, I have really made no secret of, about my utter delight, about my depth, almost obscene amount of joy that I have taken from preparing these messages in this series and then delivering these messages in this series. I mean, and if you hadn't been here at all, it's okay. So glad you're here today. Just know I've been having a lot of fun over the last three weeks in this series. And and the process of being able to excavate the book of Ecclesiastes, whether, whether in my office here or in my dining room table at home, excavate that sort of in private and then celebrate it with you in public, Man, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is why my job as pastor, it so rarely feels like work. It, it just feels like joy. And this series on some people get all the breaks kind of is, has captured all of that. And, and one of the reasons that, that I have, and some of you are like, why are we paying this guy just to have all that fun? One of, reasons, one of the reasons that I have enjoyed this series so much is because it's about a book, the book of Ecclesiastes whose author, King Solomon, about 3,000 years ago, a man who got all the breaks, I mean, in terms of wine, and women, and song, and then more wine, and more women, and more song, and add on to all that wine, and all women and all that sang in, add on to all that kind of this unbelievable amount of wealth and luxury, in spite of having it all, everything all the time, this author is so, he's so unreliable that this book that is written by a man who had it all ends up being this, what I might call a memoir of disillusionment. Like, like, what do you do? What kind of book do you write when, when, when you had everything you've ever wanted all the time? Well, Solomon's like, I'm going to write a book who, who's really, I'm going to riff the whole book on this one line. And so I hated life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17. The whole book. By this guy who's gotten all the breaks, he's, he's taken us on this roller coaster ride. I had it all. I have it all. I enjoy it all. And the result of having it all, I hate my life. I've had so many breaks, I got broken by them. And really, what's going on in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I just sort of realized it in getting these messages ready this series, is what we have is Solomon there, he's in a counseling session. And the whole book is Solomon on the therapist's couch, and he's answered, you know, how, how counselors do when you come in and they, so what brings you in here today? And the is the book of Ecclesiastes. And as if all that wasn't good enough, I mean, who would have thought that a book like that is in the Bible? You see, when you actually read the Bible, and you enjoy the Bible, it's so much more interesting and so much more alive because I know that there's a lot of you who could have written a book just like this, that you've had it all. You have it all. You've enjoyed it all. And there's been these seasons in your life where you hate it all, where that testimony of despair could have been yours. And at the end of everything. The the, the reason the book gets even better, as, as, as if it wasn't already good enough, is at the end of the book, our guy Solomon, King Solomon, is so exhausted by all of his disillusionment and all of his trauma, he just throws his hands up and he says, I'm done. And a ringer has to come in and finish the book for him. Isn't that awesome? that that our author, he's been writing and writing and writing and inventing and inventing and inventing, and and at the end he's got, I got nothing left. And a substitute comes in and carries him across the back. Let me, across the finish line, let let me show you what I mean because Solomon's last words that he speaks in this book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 8. Look at what he says, chapter 12, verse 8. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher who is Solomon. Everything is meaningless. These are identical to his very first words that open up the book, chapter 1, verse 2. I promise you can check it out. I I ain't lying. They're there. He starts out the book, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And so these words are his bookends, and then he's like, peace out. I'm done. And what happens next, what happens at the very end of the book is it's kind of like, you know, in, in, in football When the starting quarterback is not doing very good, that middle of the third quarter, the the coach throws up his hands and he's got to bring in the the second string quarterback to see if he can bring some life to this dead offense. And all of a sudden that that quarterback does great and you got a quarterback controversy on your hands. Or, Or in baseball, starting pitcher gets to the seventh inning and they're doing that pitch count. His arm is getting sore. And what do they have to bring in? They have to bring in a reliever. Or in basketball... Starting guy, after one more fast break, he's sucking wind and he motions to the bench. And what do they have to send in? They have to send in a sixth man to take his place. That's exactly what happens here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. How do I know this? Look at what it says in verse 9 of chapter 12. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge To the people. You notice? He starts talking about whoever this guy is, whoever this new author is, he starts talking about the man who's just been writing all this stuff in the third person, which has happened a time or two already in the book of Ecclesiastes, but here it is final. He begins, meaningless, meaningless guy has dropped his mic, left the stage. I'm coming in to finish up the book because he's exhausted. And it's just so interesting that Solomon has taken us on this journey, ups and downs, and ups and downs, and so much despair and so much disillusionment, and he's like, "I got nothing left." And I, and and, it, and it's also interesting in the, in the world of like Bible study, there is that world, I promise you. And people call what comes next verses nine through fourteen of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes they call it the epilogue. And Which means they call this anonymous yet inspired writer who finishes, finishes up, they call him the epilogist. And I read that and I'm like, that's way too big a word for me. We, we ain't going to be calling this guy the epilogist. He's the ringer. He's the reliever, or actually, really, he's the substitute. He's the substitute writer. And in case any of you are wondering, in tennis, you can't bring in a. That's why tennis is the coolest sport. You can't bring in. You can't bring. You can't bring in a substitute to take your place. But here, this is what this is what happens at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and at the, w- let's take a look at what the substitute writer has to say. look, look at what he says in verse nine. And 10, Because he starts out sort of by protecting Solomon's reputation. He, meaning the teacher, meaning the guy whose place I just took, he pondered and searched and said in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote, notice past, what he wrote, because I'm writing now, what he wrote was upright, and true. And, and, and that reflection that, that Solomon, in, in spite of everything he was going through, he really worked on his words. That makes me appreciate those words from earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes that are kind of famous. You may never have heard of them, but they're a little bit famous. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, To Everything There Is a Season. And a time for every ter- purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. These are just poetic and, and majestic words. And in fact, they're, 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 they, they kind of transcend all beliefs. And, and the birds back in the 1960s, and I know some of you, you were wearing bell bottoms. You parted your hair in the middle and it went down to your shoulders. And you were listening. You're nodding. You, you were listening to the birds. They had this classic folk song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Turn. And it all comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. And if, and if you're younger and you didn't know, Google it. Not now. Google it when you get home. I promise it's a great song. And it all comes from there. So it, it, it lets you know that, that even in the middle of all of his despair, moments of beauty broke through. Look at verse 11 as our substitute writer keeps going on. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Now I'm going to take a huge risk and I'm going to assume that most of you don't have a spare goad lying around in the garage. But, but a goad was a, uh, a thick wooden prod that really was embedded with nails. And shepherds would use a goad to keep their sheep in line. Because even if you are as dumb as a sheep... If you get hit with wood, embedded with nails, you will get into line. And and our author is saying, that's really what the words of Scripture are like. They're they're like a a, a goat, which reminds us, I don't know if you know this or not, reminds us that the Bible, the the words of Scripture, they're not always there to comfort you. They're also there to challenge you. Not, Not always there to uplift you. They're there to unsettle you. That's why the approach that a lot of people have to to reading the Bible is like, oh, I'm in a crisis, I'm feeling really bad, let me just open up, open open up, open up to the middle and hope something good pops out. That's not the way it works. That's not how it's designed to be used. Then he goes on. Look look at what he says in, in the last part of verse 12. Of making books, there is no end, and much study... Wearies the body. Making books, there's no end. Much study wearies the body. And and man, people have twisted themselves into all kinds of knots and pretzels trying to interpret these words. What he's saying, what's he saying? What's, what's he talking about? Books, and, and and I don't think it's all that complicated. I think it's this substitute writers. I think it's his moment of stand-up comedy. Because here he is at the end of a book, a pretty long book. And he says, hey, hey, people, don't read books. You you read too many books, it really wearies the body and makes the soul. So just be really careful in college about reading books, he says, at the end of a book. Maybe in our day, we, we, we would say, hey, people, do not trust pastors who write books. Be skeptical of clergy Thank you, some of you are getting it. Be skeptical of clergy who have books, just stay away. And so, yeah, I I think our author, this, this substitute writer, he has this moment of levity because the moment of levity prepares us for the gravity that he's gonna use to bring the book on home with. Because look how he winds it all up. Verses 13 and 14, look what it says. Now all has been heard. And here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And you read that, and you're like, what? That sounds so conventional. That sounds so much like the book of Proverbs which Solomon also wrote although he wrote Solomon he wrote he wrote Solomon no he is Solomon he wrote Proverbs when he was in a place of emotional health, and he wrote in Ecclesiastes when he was in a place of emotional despair. So how does he end this book, this book where we've been whiplash, going back and forth between disillusionment and despair, how does he end this place on this note that sounds so conventional? How is it that he ends the book where, where, where he seems to be saying to you and to me and to all of us, my goodness, your faith is not a matter of the emotions that you feel feel, but much more the obedience that you walk. And and actually, when you walk your faith in obedience, your emotions will take care of themselves. But I still read that and it still makes sense because it's so conventional, but I'm like, how? How do you finish a book that has been so bewildering, so perplexing, how do you finish it on a note that is so Conventional, even so predictable. How do you get from there to there? And then as I pondered that, reflected that, and sweated about it, and excavated it, I, I realized, ah, that's precisely the point. Maybe God had to let Solomon walk his boulevard of broken dreams so that he could see what life without him was like. Maybe God had to let Solomon riff an entire book on, so I hated life. And that was God's way of saying, yeah, you take me out of your life, you will hate it. And maybe God is so good to you and he's so good to me because he lets us overhear this therapy session that Solomon is having. And he lets us identify with all the ways that Solomon hated his life and was disillusioned with his life and despaired about life. And at the end of it, Solomon is so exhausted, so wiped out, that a substitute has to come in and put Solomon on his back and carry him across the finish line and bring clarity to every lesson that Solomon had learned along the way, which is, ah, the old Ways with God really are best. Walking out your obedience in massively small steps, one after another with God, that really is the way to live. I I didn't like what I went through. I didn't like these emotions that I felt or this despair that I endured. But now I have arrived at a place where I finally understand. That's what happens here at the end of the book. And when you realize that, suddenly the most perplexing book in the Bible becomes the most enlightening. And you realize just how good God has been to let us walk this journey with Solomon, because I know so many of you and so many of you and so many of you, you know exactly what it's like to be depressed. And you know exactly what it's like to have despair. You know exactly what it is like to hate your life. And God lets you in on that ride with all this difficulty and all this pain, realizing Solomon didn't like it, but it was absolutely essential to him to land at the faith that got him started to begin with. Because here's where it all lands us, this, this often bewildering book, perplexing journey, but it lands us at this simple but liberating truth. Here it is. You don't have to like it for God to use it. Yeah, in your life and in your life and in your life and in in my life, you don't have to enjoy what you're going through for God to take it as the raw material of your pain and your difficulty and craft it into something beautiful that you never could have lived into otherwise. It doesn't have to be pleasant to be potent I I think what Solomon had to learn, Solomon had to feel and experience. He had to feel the weight of his own self-destruction. That if God didn't let him feel the penalty of his sin and his self-destruction, he never would have realized how awful life was without God and how beautiful it was with him in the middle. You don't have to like it for God to use it. Because the alternative, the alternative where God keeps us at an arm's distance and he never makes us feel the weight of our own self-destruction along the way, that, that alternative is awful to think about. It makes me think about a guy that I was talking to in my office one time who was really having a hard time getting sober. He could not stop drinking. And so we were talking about, well, you know, because he came to me to talk about how How can he stop drinking? And, and I, I said, well, how, are, are you in an AA group? Nah, I tried it, but I didn't like it. Do you have a sponsor? I did, but we didn't get along. Well, how about a church group? Maybe for Bible study and emotional health. Ah, a bunch of hypocrites. And really, he said, what I want to do is I want to try to just get sober my way. So I thought about that, and I said, well, how's your way doing for you? And how's your way doing for you? You don't have to like it for God to use it. In fact, on the... The positive side is like what happens for a, a lot of folks and some of you I, I know when, when you're involved in, in distance running or, or strength training or, or, or both maybe. And uh, you know when when you're some because I know some of you 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 do distance running and you do three k's or five k's or or ten k's and then I know the super cool among you you have those thirteen point one bumper stickers on your car and then super 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 cool you got twenty six point two bumper stickers on your car which if you don't know what that means that means the driver of that car has finished a marathon and you know what it's like to be in training for that that you hit that wall and your lungs are burning and your thighs are dying and you feel like you just have to give up, every part of you wants to give up, and yet if you press through that wall and you keep running even when you don't wanna keep running, that's when all the endurance gets built, that's when all the good stuff starts to happen in your life and in your body. That's what it's like, or with strength training, and you know, you, 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 you're doing a set and you need to have 12 reps on that set and you get to, to rep number 10 and 10's good. I mean, 10's a lot more than those losers who aren't doing any. And, and you want to stop at 10 because 10's good and, and your, your muscles are saying, let me out of here. And, and that's when you realize, yeah, I got to do two more. Every bit of good that's gonna be happen is gonna happen in number 11 and 12. That's what it's like. That you don't have to like it. For God to use it. Maybe what I'm thinking about is like what happens when eagles, and I don't mean the Hotel California eagles, I mean I mean the, the a, a real eagle. When when they build their nest, I don't know if you knew this or not, but when eagles build their nest, they build them in such a way, purposely, Mommy Eagle builds her nest in such a way that there are twigs that are positioned so that they will make the the behinds, I almost said bottoms, whatever, the backside of little eaglets uncomfortable on purpose. And mama eagle does that, makes those nests like that with with the twigs positioned so the little eagle will be uncomfortable because if little eagle gets too comfortable in the nest, he'll just stay in that nest all day playing video games and will never learn to fly, and, and so mama has to build the nest that way as a way of making her little eaglet uncomfortable as a way of saying, hey, stop taking it so easy. Get out there and learn to fly. That's what it's like. It's what God has to do in our lives. Make us for our own good. Uncomfortable. God, you don't have to like it for God to use it. Here's how how it worked in in my life, and maybe this is why I believe it so much, is that some of you may, may know, a lot of you may know, if you've never been here before, you have no idea, but that I grew up in Texas, and I went to college in New Jersey. Grew up in Texas, you got the geography. Grew up in Texas, college in New Jersey. Now, I didn't want to go to that college in New Jersey. I wanted to stay in Texas. I wanted to try and be a pro tennis player by staying in Texas. I didn't want to go up there. I didn't much like it while I was there. And, and even today, as an alum, you know, it's been like 10 or 12 years since I graduated. <laughs> I'm not rah-rah alumni guy. All in all, when I think of seasons in my life that I liked or not, that New Jersey interlude most definitely Did not like. And yet I now realize that that interlude in New Jersey that I didn't like set up the rest of my life that I love because when you think about my life, my life is not Ecclesiastes 2.17. I don't hate, I really love life because at that college in New Jersey, that's where I first heard a call to ministry. That's where I majored in English and learned how to string words together. And Yeah, some of you read the reading prompts every day. It's how I learned how to read a book like Ecclesiastes. And maybe most of all, it's where I met my wife who loved that college by the way. All in all, my life as I now know it and that my, my life that I love would not be possible with that interlude that I didn't like. And so every so often when I'm having a pity party, which is like pretty often, and I'm like, wah, 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 wah. And I'm like, ah, oh, and didn't get to see what it was like to be a pro tennis player. And I've never lived in Texas again. And, and when I'm doing, I hear God say, Shut up, you baby. You don't have to like it for me to use it. So where is it? Where is it for you? Is it a physical limitation? You don't have to like it for God to use it. Is it the aftermath of a divorce? You don't have to like it for God to use it. Is it a chronic sickness? You don't have to like it for God to use it. Do you feel like you're in the wrong career? You don't have to like it for God to use it you got family members resistant to the gospel. You don't have to like it for God to use it. Have you fallen off the wagon after years of sobriety? You don't have to like it for God to use it. Solomon didn't like what he went through, but he went through it. And if a substitute had to carry him across the finish line for him to get it, he got it. Huh, a substitute. Where else? Where else have we seen that before? Who else? When we couldn't cross our own finish line, who else put us on his back, the back that was strong enough to carry the cross and took us over. What other substitute, good shepherd, did for us what we could never do for ourselves? What other substitute, good shepherd, took the penalty of our sin and said to us, I'll take it all on me. I'll feel all your pain. I'll feel all your disillusionment. I will understand your despair and I will take it and I will adore it and I will redeem it. What other substitute, good shepherd, would make it so that we could declare Christ in me is to live and to die is to gain. Jesus, only Jesus, the substitute of all substitutes let's let's pray god thank you you did for us when we were exhausted and when we could go no further and when we were helpless you carried us across the line thank you lord and i pray now you would stir up gratitude for all the things you're using in our lives in jesus name we pray Would you rise on your feet as you're able and the band will lead us